month as I was putting this sermon series together and looking at the calendar and kind of mapping it out, um, I knew that the first Sunday I was going to be preaching about growth groups and why uh, in 2018 we as a Jesus community should organize our lives in such a way that we can take relational risks and get to know one another better and in the process of that grow deeper in our faith. I have a really firm belief that um, any time that we open ourselves up to relationship with someone else, we have a great opportunity to be changed. That our lives will not be the same from that moment on because of the interactions that we can have with other people and the opportunities that we have to grow into better humans through those interactions and the way God uses them. And so I wanted to preach about that and try to inspire us to, to connect with one another more. And then I wanted to preach a sermon about service and how in 2018 we as a, as a church should organize our lives in a way that we can serve one another and more importantly serve those who are outside of, the, outside of church society. And how, how can we go about doing that? And so as I was looking at the calendar, I realized that the second week was going to be MLK weekend. And I got really excited thinking, man, this is going to be great. I get to preach about service on MLK weekend, and I can tie in service with the life of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement and those who worked in the civil rights movement. And, um, and then my plan kind of got messed up in men's Bible study one morning when uh, Father John Nagley was there, and he started talking about um, some of the work that he did. And he told a story about um, when he was, were you in Alabama? When you went to the church in Alabama? And he said he had a long, like really long hair and a ponytail down to the middle of his back. And he was wearing his clerical collar like he has on this morning. And he walked into a, to a Episcopal church and people in that church started to spread out and make sure there wasn't room for him to sit. And so he did what any good pastor would do. He went and sat right in the middle of the aisle of the center aisle of the church, and I thought, this is a guy I've got to know more about. And so um, I learned more about him and asked him to come this morning and help me um, preach this sermon. And so it's not going to be a typical sermon. It's going to be me talking with Father John and us getting to know each other a little bit, doing the relational thing that I was talking about, but doing it in front of all of you. So hopefully you'll get to know Father John some, and you'll be inspired by the stories that he tells to go out and serve other people also. So I'm helping John come up on the stage, watch this video. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state 
sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
Did you ever preach a sermon that was that good? No. Okay, we're done. Let's go. No, sir. So, John, uh, Father, I was... uh, I wanted to introduce you a little to the church. So you were telling us earlier today that you went high school, college, went into the schools to teach, and then got drafted into the military. And after a stint in the military, I went to seminary, which is a natural path, I think, for a lot of people. <laughs> went to seminary um, in Lexington. Is that where you went? Lexington yes. Semina- or Episcopal Seminary. Because it was free if you got accepted, right? Correct. Wish there were more seminaries like that. And then um, from there, you got appointed to your first parish, correct? Yes. So uh, tell us about that first parish. All right. Parish means church, Methodists. (laughs) Yes. Um, I... At the time of finishing seminary, and being ordained a priest, over that period of four years, really, I did not win any awards with my bishop. Uh, We were not really good friends when my time in seminary was over and I was looking for a place to go. And when it was my turn, he said, I'm sending you out to this tiny little town in the southeastern mountains of Kentucky. The name of that town is Hazard. Was Boss Hog there? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. My wife and I had a baby girl and packed up our little amount of belongings and headed out to southeastern Kentucky in the mountains. And when we got there, our our house was not ready. So we stayed in a dentist's home with his family. I got up early the first morning. And decided I would take a little walk down into this metropolis called Hazard. And as I approached closer and closer 
hanging from a light post in the town, I could see something. And as I got closer and closer, I realized it was a young black boy. I later became aware that he was 14 years old and he was hanged till he died for one reason he was black my life I would say almost in that instant was changed so that was the first day that you lived in that town yes what was the first Sunday like with your church God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to achieve. And on that Sunday, as they had found out how upset I was and how I was concerned for that community, they decided with me that we were going to do something about it. And they they just acquired the money among themselves. And we went out and bought an excess Quonset hut that they used to sell when the army got done with them. So we bought one. And we made it a little school because if you were this tall and black and weren't really important, you didn't go to school. So we got the school started and a doctor in my parish that Sunday offered three big garages that he had in a row and in those garages this parish set up a food pantry and a clothing place and a little office like on the end where we could keep track of what we were going to try to do. There was not a soul in that parish who said, that's not a good idea. We, 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 we can't, no, we can't do that. They were right there 
they saw where with with what they had and what the Lord had seen that they had gotten for their life they could use in a very wonderful way to help the lives of other people in our little town. So you, you started education, which we know changes things. Yes. And then you started helping out the physical needs of people. Yes. And then you started a little office to help help people help themselves in, right? Yes. So um, was that kind of it? Uh, you, you told us a story uh, also earlier about... Um, how supportive the Episcopal Church was with the youth anyway, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by the way, I'm not trying to throw the Episcopal yes, bus under are. the proverbial yeah. bus. <laughs> <clears throat> that, later in that summer, uh, the diocese had a summer camp. Nice summer camp. I had a friend in Lexington, Kentucky who had a black parish. Mind you, the church was not integrated. And we decided that we were going to get a bus and we were going to take children from St. Mark's where I was and where he was in Lexington. So we got in the bus, got kids from St. Mark's, went up to Lexington, got all the kids there that, you know, all prepared, ready to stay a week at camp. Went down, pulled into the camp, opened the door to get out, Whoa, whoa. You're bringing black children to this camp? No, you're not. You're not welcome. We hashed that out for a while. They were not going to take our kids. They weren't going to take the white kids because um, they they felt that, you know, something had rubbed off in the bus ride that, why, we can't have them here either. And I said to the director of the camp, that's fine. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We are going to take this bus, turn around, and go to the state capitol, call the newspapers, call the radio stations, and the entire state of Kentucky, and I would imagine half the places in this country will know by 5 o'clock tonight what the Diocese of Lexington and the Episcopal Church is all about. That's what we're going to do. Well, let us, let us think for a minute. 
what happened. We stayed. They didn't want the world to know that at least this little area of the Episcopal Church um, was the way it was. And that's when you became best friends with your bishop? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's what I figured. Yes. We, we were buddies from that point on. Yes. Uh, you, you got involved with um, the, not, not uh, the official Freedom Riders, but you were a Freedom Rider also. Uh, yes. Tell us about that. Four of us a big Quaker man from Philadelphia who was even bigger than this man right here. Big, big Philadelphia Quaker. Was probably six four, two hundred and fifty pounds if he weighed an ounce. And a white lady and this white priest and a little black lady went to Alabama. Mississippi had just recently passed the law that black people could go to the back of the bus. Not so in Alabama. So we went to Alabama and we got on a bus, four of us, and sat down in the front The doors in the bus never closed. The bus didn't start to move again. And the bus driver got out of his seat and he walked over and he stood to his mistake directly in front of this big Quaker from Philadelphia. And I, 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 he looked down at him, and I have to eliminate some of the dialogue. <laughs> but that bus driver looked down at that Quaker, and he said, Get your behind. And that little black blank sitting there to the back of the bus. Nobody moved. Not even the other people on the bus.
And when we didn't, the bus driver struck the black the Quaker in the front seat. And then he told him again, in even worse language, about getting the four of us to the back of the bus. And then he hit that Quaker man a second time. And the Quaker man stood up probably a foot taller than the bus driver. And he grabbed that bus driver. And he said to him, Now that thou hast allowed me to fulfill the scripture, I am going to kick the crap out of you. (laughs) And he did. And he threw him through the open doors of that bus out into the street. I think none of the rest of us moved for fear we were going to die or whatever. But the big point of the story is that the following morning, word came from Dr. King's office. Here's a ticket. Put the Quaker on a bus back to Philadelphia. What happens to do, what happens to you when you're in the kind of situation that we were in is really not what's important. What's important is what you're saying and what you're doing. So if they strike you, you cannot strike back. If they swear at you, you don't swear back. You're there. You're there. If you're part of Dr. King's movement, you're there in love. Matters not what they do. It matters what you do. I was sorry that the Quaker had to go, but I understood why he had to go. Because, folks, if you're standing in a line of people, and you may have seen them in that film, I don't know for sure, and you've got your hands here, and somebody is locked in this arm, and somebody is locked in this arm, straight down, and you've got a line And they tell you, 
don't step over that line. You step over that line. Usually, we, we, we made it through when we stepped over the line because here's people from that wall to that wall lined up. But it takes... It's another thing, to be honest with you, when there are only four of you sitting in a row and you know how this community feels, but yet you're ready to sit. You're not ready to get up and punch somebody. You're ready to sit and love and show to the world what that man in that picture back there is all about. Love and care and concern. So in a nutshell, that's how you get your bishop to like you. Yes. Okay. Yes. I keep I keep bringing that up not not to make a joke of it, but there there's a thing that happens sometimes amongst the pastorate and uh, where we get concerned about what our supervisors think about us. And it's not just the pastorate. I'm you all have that also in your places of employment. And we can lose credibility if we don't do the types of things that they want. And so, Father, why was it important to you? I mean, you, you, you lost a lot and you could have lost more, but you weren't gaining anything, were you? I mean, what was it? So why, why did you care? Because you could have done uh, what comes natural for, for us good followers of Jesus, which is pray for people who are, you know, we see things on the news and we can pray for people. We can send money. Why was it that you were moved to action? There was a rope with a 14-year-old black boy on the end of it. I'd never seen that before. And my Lord had told me all my life about what we're really supposed to be doing. About how much we are supposed to love and care about all the other people, not just around us, but in the world. And I cared, and so did so many other people, and 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 many of those young folk right right there with Dr. King's movement died and were killed because they wanted to love, and they wanted to care, and they wanted to give a little bit of themselves, maybe a whole lot of themselves for somebody less fortunate than they were. And that's what keeps that going. 
I'm going to read a scripture for us, and then I'd like for you to close us with prayer. This is uh, from John chapter 14, it's verse 12. And I think what I heard you say was that your faith, your, your depth of belief in Jesus caused you to move in action. And there's a place in scripture that says, uh, faith without works is dead faith. Yes. That our, our faith leads us to work. Listen to what Jesus says, though. He said, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And, in fact, will do greater works than these. And uh, as, as you were talking and I was thinking about people who are still, to this day, working for civil rights for all. Because the work is not done. And it's not just about race. It's about gender. And it's about orientation. And there are a lot of other things that we recognize now. A lot of intersections that people can get left in. Um, uh, and so we're still working towards the dream and we are. Uh, we're doing, we're doing the work of Jesus. So would you pray to close us out? Yes. Heavenly father, we are really in this world because of you. Because of your love. And it is a love that you have asked us to share with the whole world. You have asked us certainly to share that love with all the people with whom we come in contact. So Lord, give us the strength and the love that we must have in order to share. Show us the way that we can best help and then give us the courage and the willpower and your love as we spend our time doing your work in this world in which we live, which needs help, dear Lord. So let us be a part of that so that ultimately all mankind can live peacefully together And that we can, as Dr. King says, we can hold hands and we can walk together and talk together and work together for the betterment of mankind through your love 
And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.